This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. Now I tell you all the time that unions are good for working families. And I also tell you quite often that the government has turned against us. Since the labor law was formed in the 1930s, the government has steadily made it harder and harder and harder for people to exercise their God-given right to organize. Now, I can't explain all the ins and outs of the new labor law reform currently in Congress. It will probably be passed soon in the House of Representatives, but it will have a difficult time, like all progressive legislation does, when it tries to get to the Senate. So, I recorded two attorneys. Rick Levy used to be the general counsel for the Texas AFL-CIO. He's now the president. Lynn Reinhardt was the general counsel for the national AF of LCIO, and she is now a, uh, an expert at the Economic Policy Institute. Rick interviewed Lynn on the Live at Five Monday presentation. They do this every Monday at five o'clock on the Texas AF of LCIO website. And so he asked her for the specifics as to exactly what is going to happen with the new labor law reform, which is called the PRO Act, Protect the Right to Organize. Here's Rick Levy and Lynn Renhart. Tonight, the person who I invited and she actually came and said yes, be with us is like one of the smartest people I know, but also one of the most committed people in the labor movement to fighting for workers' rights for literally decades. And I knew her when she was the general counsel of the National AFL-CIO, where she was, yes, she was an awesome lawyer, but she was also an organizer, building an organization out of union lawyers across the country to coordinate on legal strategy, on, on policy strategy, and just was an amazing leader there. And now she's moved on from that and is serving as a senior fellow with the Economic Policy Institute. She was recognized by President Biden as a leader in this field and was invited to be on the transition team and just a, a great human being. So welcome, Lynn Reinhardt, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Rick. I'm really, I'm happy to be here. It's, it's a super important topic and we've been waiting a long time for this moment, so. Tell us, what is this moment? What's happening? Why, why, do, why should people be so excited? People should be excited because we have the best chance we've had in our lifetimes to pass meaningful reform to our labor laws that would actually restore the right of workers to form unions without interference and harassment and discrimination by their employers, which is something that we see way too much of these days. The law as it stands right now gives employers way too much room to maneuver and interfere with workers' choice as we are seeing in Amazon right now down in Bessemer, Alabama. And the law is just too weak to stop that. And so this week, the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. is going to vote on legislation to try to restore workers' rights to form unions, which was supposed to be the purpose of the law when it was first passed in 1935. But over the years, it's been weakened and has really made it, it makes it far too hard for workers to form unions when they want to. So it's exciting that this 
legislation is going to get a vote in the House of Representatives. And it's also super exciting that we actually have a president of the United States who sent a letter saying that he supports this legislation in contrast to his predecessor, who about a year ago today sent a letter saying he would veto this legislation. Oh. So what a difference a year makes. And yeah. it's yeah. a good week. Yeah. So I, let's talk about that for just a second, because you know, in the law, which was passed, when was the original labor law passed? Like 1935, a little before I was born. And in that law, it says that it's the policy. No, I think you were were born. (laughs) I was thinking about being born, but I hadn't decided. (laughs) So what the law says is it's the policy of the United States that collective bargaining is encouraged, right? I mean, that's like literally the law and that it's up to the workers. And that has been so warped to the point where now, when you have a president like this president Biden, who last week came out and said it is the policy of this country that workers should have the right to organize and the employer doesn't have a thing to say about it, full stop. That felt so radical to hear that from a president, but yet that simply reflect, I mean, that simply reflects what the law is. What does that say about like the level of expectation and understanding that people have of what their rights are to form unions? Right. The law has fallen so far away from where it was supposed to be, where it started, which, as you say, was supposed to be to promote the idea of collective bargaining because, newsflash, unions are good. Unions are good for workers. Unions are good for workers who have a union. And this is something that we don't talk about enough. Unions are good for workers who don't have a union because unions are it's workers coming together at their workplace to negotiate with their employer for higher standards. And then those higher standards spill over and raise standards at other workplaces and communities. And so we have found that as the level of unionization has gone down, wages have gone down, not just for union workers, but for non-union workers, because they both get the benefits and then they feel the pain when when unions aren't as strong as we need them to be. So, so restoring that right and really making it more possible for workers to form unions is good for, for all workers. It's good for workers of color who there's a, there's a wage benefit from being in unions that is even higher for workers of color. It's good for women workers. And so this is why, newsflash, polling and research shows that workers actually want unions. Uh, The the most recent um, data on this is that 48% of workers, non-union workers, say that they would they want a union at work, but only 12% of workers have a union at work. So that's a 400% gap between workers who have a union and want a union. That tells you something that, you know, we've got a problem. And President Biden's statement saying it ought to be workers' choice, no interference, full stop, was such a fantastic statement of what the law should be. Yeah. So, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's certainly not by design, but what's going on in Bessemer, Alabama right now is like a perfect example of number one, the problem that the law was, is trying to solve. And number two, how this law would make that so different. Like talk, you know, tell, if folks don't know, tell people what's happening in Alabama and how it relates to the PRO Act and what would be different. Sure. You're right. The situation at Amazon and Bessemer is classic illustration of why we need this legislation to pass. So workers in at a it's a um, fulfillment center in Bessemer, Alabama, it's about 6000 workers who are going to be voting on whether to form a union. You know, they 
fill packages. They're fulfillment centers. So they fill packages up with the stuff that people order from Amazon. It's very, it's hard work. It's physical. Yeah. It's very hard work and it's logistically incredibly complicated. And because of concerns about the lack of breaks, number of hours without breaks, issues around, you know, dignity and respect, issues around health and safety, issues around wages. Workers in Bessemer said they want to form a union. And so what they did is they filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board, which is the federal agency that that runs elections and oversees this whole system. And they said they wanted to have an election. What did Amazon do? Did they sit back and say, oh, our workers want to have a, an election on whether to form a union? Okay, we'll let them have their choice. They can vote. Uh, and just stay out of it like an employer, you know, that truly believed in free choice would do. No, they didn't do that. What they did is what employers routinely do when workers try to organize, which is they try to stall the election. So they go to the National Labor, Labor Relations Board and just throw up arguments and litigate and try to stall the election. And they did. And that's and the reason is that then they use that time to campaign against the union. And what they do is they force workers to attend these anti-union meetings. You have to attend or you could be fired or disciplined if you don't show up at the meeting where the boss tells workers all the reasons why the boss thinks they should vote against the union. They're called captive audience meetings because you're actually literally captive, stuck in this meeting, listening to the boss, trash the union, and the union is not allowed on the property to respond or to give the the other side of, of the argument. They have to stand outside the plant and it gets even worse. In Bessemer, Amazon got the county to change the traffic lights so that there was so that as workers were coming to and from work in their cars that was a time when union organizers could actually talk to workers about forming a union amazon got the lights changed so that they'd go by faster so that the organizers would have less time to talk so there's just this total imbalance in ability to communicate about the benefits of unionization and employers use their control over the workplace to just pound anti-union messages into workers. And unless they make threats, it's legal under our current law for employers to do this. And the, and also under our current law, it's there are no consequences when employers break the law. There are no penalties when employers break the law. I don't mean low penalties. I mean, no penalties when employers break the law. So a company like Amazon, let's say that they actually did make threats and that's illegal. What they do at the end of the day, after the case works its way through the system, years later, if they're found liable and guilty for breaking the law, they have to put up a poster. Wow. And say, you know, we broke the law and you know what? We're not going to do that anymore. There's no penalty. So, I mean, imagine if that was the system for speeding tickets you know rick levy you just got a speeding ticket for 70 going 70 in a 50 mile an hour you know so here just put something up on your car windshield that says you won't right. do it again yeah you, you know, well, there's I, no fine there's no I, I could see the merits of a law like that but i mean not in the labor context but so it would change that so like what is what is like the what is like what is like the meat of what the pro act actually does because that's that's what we've that's what people have asked me so well we understand that it's going to change it but like how will it really be different like what will really happen like what what's yeah. the key i think i think there are really three main points to the pro act the first is when workers come together and want to form a union and go to the national labor relations board what the pro act says is that is a 
that is a decision between workers and the National Labor Relations Board. We're going to keep the employer out of it. It is not their choice so that they can't play these games and stall and muck up the election system. It's That's between workers and the government agency that runs elections. And that's a really significant change that would make a huge difference. Think about the Amazon campaign and what it would be like if wow. if Amazon wasn't able to interfere. Yeah. And, and related to that, it would ban these captive audience meetings that, that we were talking about. So employers couldn't have that kind of one-way communication trashing the union. So that's one on the organizing front. And then second, the other thing that employers do too often is, let's say workers run through this gauntlet and they have their election and they vote for a union, which we hope is the case in Bessemer, that at the end of the day, when the votes are counted, workers form a union. The next thing employers do is they stall bargaining so that you don't get a collective bargaining agreement, which of course makes workers really frustrated because the whole idea of forming a union was they want to negotiate with their employer for a contract. And so employers stall that process and, and then use that to try to turn workers against the union. And what the PRO Act would do is set a process in place that if the parties can't reach an agreement, there's a process for them to go to mediation and then if need to be to arbitration to get a contract so that you you don't have that futility factor that is right. in half half of situations today newly formed unions don't get a contract um, in a year you know they're still waiting for a contract and then the third thing is the the penalties that it would actually establish some penalties for breaking the law and give the right of workers to go to court to enforce their rights if the if the national labor relations board doesn't which you know with what we've just lived through for the last four years seems like having an outlet where you can take action on your own if you've got a trump national labor relations board that doesn't believe in enforcing workers rights yeah that, that's always been weird to me it's like because I know like if you get fired because of discrimination or because of violation of some law like that, you can go to court to have your rights vindicated. But under if you get fired for trying to organize a union, it's not like that, right? Your rights are so dependent on the government. Why? What is that about? I think what that's about is that that, that was a model that that the legislators thought made sense in 1935. Hmm. But since 1935, a lot of other laws have been passed that established other mechanisms for enforcing rights that have turned out to be important and and more effective and that you can't put all of your eggs in the government agency basket, especially when you don't know who's going to be in charge of those government agencies. So really what this would do is it's, it's, it's not radical or anything. It would just basically bring labor law up to the same baseline as other laws so that it's it, it's on par. Because you're right, it doesn't make any sense. Why should yeah. why should your rights for enforcing, your ability to enforce your union rights be so much weaker than your anti-discrimination rights or your wage rights, or your health and safety rights? Right. Okay. So I'm going to ask a really weird question. It's like, because in answer to that question, I'm going to ask a question, which is like, the laws have gotten steadily weaker for unions and people in in unions to assert their rights. So it started like in what, 1948 with Taft-Hartley with the right to work laws and continued with, you know, with the right, you know, you can't engage in secondary boycotts and you ha- you can't respect picket lines, you know, and then, you know, all the ways that the corporate class has kind of gone on offensive, like replacing striking workers. It's like, law after law after law has made it 
much more difficult for workers to join unions. And that is why we have such raging inequality, like you mentioned. That is why um, it's so bad for all workers. But it's like, this law is like, revert for the first time that I think we can remember is really pushing things in the other direction on all these different matters. And that's what's so, to me, exciting about it. It's like, we get so used to the way it is that it feels radical to like reclaim what should rightfully be our rights. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you mentioned the secondary uh, boycott issue and strikes. So, right, it used to be that workers could, you know, workers need economic leverage to achieve what they want to achieve. <laughs> they can, you know, lock workers out or do various things. And and what we found was in the early days of labor law, workers and unions were using these leverage points and winning at the bargaining table. And employers said, oh God, we can't have that. You know, and so they went to Congress and got the law weakened so that they took away these economic weapons that that workers had to try to win their their priorities at the bargaining table. And it's one of the things that's really exciting about the PRO Act is it would restore some balance in the bargaining process and say, you know what? Workers deserve to have some leverage in the bargaining process. It's going to be okay if they go to the bank that gives the loan to the business and says, hey, we've got a problem with this Hey, bank that that finances Amazon, we're having a problem with Amazon. Tell Amazon to be fair, to play yeah. fair with their workers and stuff. Allowing that kind of activity in this economy where everything is so interrelated just makes sense. And it's like, you know, having workers fight the fight with an arm tied behind their back to not allow them to explore those kinds of, of leverage points. So, and sorry, I'm going on here, but yeah. I... I neglected to mention, and you raised it, another really um, great provision in the PRO Act is that it would override these so-called right-to-work laws, which, as your listeners all know, doesn't have any getting a job or keeping a job, but it has to do with weakening unions. And what, it, what the PRO Act would say is, we don't care what a particular state says, it's legal for a union and an employer to negotiate what's known as a fair share agreement so that everybody covered by the contract pays their fair share. We're not going to stand in the way of that private agreement between a private employer and a private union for fair share. That's going to be allowed. So it'll override right to work, which is, is a really important feature. That's so huge. I mean, I mean, as long as I've been in the labor movement, we've been talking about right to work. And I don't think people understand, just know that this is like a legitimate like effort to overturn right to work, which we which we suffer under every single day. And I think that's hasn't been talked about a lot with the PRO Act, but I, that's kind of why we wanted to talk about this with you, Lynn, because I think there's so much in here that people need to understand. You know, one of the other things about the national labor law is that it doesn't, it leaves a lot of people out. And I see that there's a lot of folks that have questions around, you know, public employees in Texas, for example, don't have the right to uh, collective bargain for the most part. But does the PRO Act or, or is that being addressed? In other words, folks who, who, who basically have to organize, 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 but can never have an agreement with their employer, does it affect that? Yes. So the PRO Act does a couple of things on that front. One is that it adopts what's known as the ABC test for determining whether or not somebody is an employee covered by the law. And it's a test that tries to crack down on the problem of misclassifying workers as independent contractors, which, you know, is a huge issue. You think about all the platform oh, yeah. workers, you think about construction, you think about home care. So the PRO Act would 
pull into labor law a very protective test that would result in broader coverage of, of workers um, and their labor rights under labor law, which is a, a really great feature um, of the PRO Act. And then it also deals with another a problem relating to supervisors or so-called supervisors. It does not at this point do things like cover domestic workers or agricultural workers who are two other groups excluded by, private sector groups excluded by our federal labor law. And that's something that still needs to be addressed. It also doesn't cover state and local employees, but there's another piece of legislation that it has either been reintroduced or is soon to be reintroduced called the Public Service Freedom to Negotiate Act, which would extend collective bargaining rights to all state and local government employees. So that's another one to watch and to support when it comes forward. Yeah. it's. Uh so interesting to think about the dynamics and how different it is. And I guess the question that people will have is like, okay, this sounds all really, really good. You know, we have two years at least, you know, it, we have to, we can't count on anything other than two years where we would have a democratic majority. What's the path to getting these measures, both of them, the ones that you talked about passed? That is a great question because, I mean, we just, we really, we cannot lose sight of this moment. We have worker-friendly majorities in both houses of Congress, and we have a president who is pro-union. And as you said, put out that video, who supports the PRO Act. We have this moment and we cannot blow it. (laughs) So that means organizing and 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 mobilizing and speaking out and lobbying and contacting legislators and you know speaking up on social media about you know workers should have unions pass the pro act and just we need some to make some noise here to put some pressure on legislators that we're not going to wait on this we can't we can't wait on this because yeah. if it's only going in one direction you know employers have they've they've figured out how to exploit all the weaknesses in the law and then if they can't get their way, they go to court where Donald Trump has packed the courts. You know, so we need this law changed now because it's that's the only way it's going to reverse that 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 trend in unionization and give workers a fair shot. So I guess I, I just think we need to keep the pressure on and not think of this as a long term thing, but think of this as a we need this now thing and just push like crazy. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. It's not just calling our Congress people. It's talking to our members so that they understand and getting them to do so. It's creating a different orientation towards the whole issue of unions and the thing. That was the one thing that was so cool to me when President Biden gave that video and talked in such unabashed terms about the positive role that unions play in the world. That changes things. That changes things. You know, it's not something, you know, I think we all have this tendency to like not feel like we can really put out why unions are so good or just be out, you know, yeah, the president of the United States is telling you, this is the way it needs to be. That needs to put some wind behind our sails. The fact that he's putting his prestige on the line, trying to get this passed is big. And this is a historic moment that we have to take advantage of. I, I couldn't agree more. And yeah, the, the legislation is going to come up in the House. It should pass. And then it goes to the Senate, which is 50-50. And as everybody knows, there's still this thing in the Senate called the filibuster, which re- requires 60 votes, 60 votes for, for legislation at this point. And, you know, I'm the half glass full kind of person and believe that we should make enough noise and make the case effectively enough that we get 60 votes. 
Like yep. there should be 60 votes to restore workers' rights to form unions. But if there's not, then they're gonna have to figure out, I mean, I think our second demand is, if there's not 60 votes, then figure out a way to pass it with the majority because this That's can't it. wait, this can't wait. But, you know, so many of the things that are happening in that body up in the Capitol, whether it's voting rights, whether it's the stimulus package, whether it's, you know, it all depends on having strong unions and strong rights in the workplace. It all stems from there. And, you know, I think that the case has been made that good that unions are good for everybody and that we can't miss out on this moment. So, yeah, I, I, you got me fired up. I got to hang up now so I can go call my, my congressperson. I'll just say that in terms of the Texas congresspeople so far, if y'all are listening, that all of all of the Democratic congressmen with the exception Congress people with the exception of three signed on as co-sponsors. Colin Allred and Lizzie Fletcher did not sign on as co-sponsors, but have publicly committed publicly committed to voting for it. And Henry Cuellar from Laredo has uh, indicated that he is not in favor of the PRO Act. So there you have it. There's there's who you need to talk to. And obviously those of y'all who live in Republican areas, please let them know that this is not it's not a partisan issue. I mean, we have Republican members and Democratic members. It's time for people to stand with workers. So, Rick, can I just add one thing to what you said? Any of my sisters who are watching the show tonight, unions are a force for equality and justice and fairness in the workplace and are good for working women. We all know that in terms of pay, in terms of sick days, in terms of family leave, in terms of all, equal pay, all of that. So I think an appropriate way to honor working women in the United States and across the world is for working women to pick up the phone and call their legislatures today to say pass the PRO Act. That's awesome. See, that's why I think you were the former general counsel of the AFL-CIO and the senior fellow at the EPI. But Lynn, you're so awesome. Thank you so much. I love listening to you and I, you just lay things out so clearly and with such purpose. And so are really hopeful that we can springboard off of this and people can get involved and get engaged and Hopefully um, we'll have time to celebrate it sometime when we can all be back together. But thank you so much for your work. And yep. Thank you. All right. Get this bill passed. This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra. We've been listening to Rick Levy of the Texas AFL-CIO and Lynn Reinhart, currently who works for the EPI, the Economic Policy Institute, discussing the all-important PRO Act, Protect the Right to Organize. Workers Beat Extra.